Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. Mark Andes is a legendary rock musician, a bassist with an incredible resume. He was a member of Cant Heat and Spirit in the late 60s while still a teen. Later, he became one of the founding members of Firefall, playing on their first four albums. Then he spent a decade with Hart, a decade with Dan Fogelberg, and played with numerous other artists before returning to Firefall in the last decade. As you might imagine, Mark is on a first-name basis with many famous rockers. But I'm not, and you're probably not either. So when you hear him talking about Randy, he's referring to Randy California, the leader of Spirit. And when he talks about Jock, he's referring to Jock Bartley, the leader of Firefall, who was an RPM 45 guest a few episodes ago. So now that I've cleared all that up, here's our talk with Mark Andes. I try to uh, prepare for these talks, and you've done so much that it was a real challenge to prepare for you. How'd you get into all this? Where'd, how'd you start? It's kind of a cool story. My dad was an actor and went from the Broadway stage to California to pursue a film career, which he did successfully. Had his own TV series and in the films with Marilyn Monroe. So my brother and I grew up in the L.A. area. There were a lot of show business people that were living in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, Roy Rogers and Dale and, and Sandy and Dusty were uh, neighbors. They had the, one of the ranches close by. It was an area where there were a lot of uh, gentlemen ranchers and Monty Montana and Crash Corrigan and all these guys were out there. And we were exposed to a lot of really cool music. You know, my parents traveled. They did movies in Europe. And we were exposed to a lot of show tunes. And but we had friends that were older. And I had a, a, a special friend, Glenn Endress. He had this great singles collection. We would play his, his records and they would, it blew my mind. And then there was a moment, this all kind of came to a point, And it was when I heard Link Ray's rumble. I'll never forget it. It was 1958. And I heard this menacing. Dun, dun, dun. It had the menace and the sound. But it was so simple to play. I, I said, I can do that. And my brother and I were starting to get curious. We had piano lessons, but then we started to enjoy the guitar. But that was the little trip line that got us going because we could actually play that. And that we could do it. And, and, and it became the, the beginning of my brother and I, just the two of us, grew into a little high school band that actually did pretty well and throughout that interaction with the the uh, young musicians in, in the san fernando valley i connected with uh, jay ferguson and uh, that began what would ultimately wind up with his brother introducing us to randy who introduced us to his mom's boyfriend ed cassidy and jay ferguson mike fondelier randy cass and myself became the red roosters Cass got a, a, a jazz gig in New York and relocated the family. Can't Heat was just getting going, and he, they they liked the way I played. I don't know why. I, I was a rock guy. I wasn't a blues guy, but they dug my vibe, and I love those guys. They were just so original. <laughs> so you were in Can't Heat coming out of high school? Basically, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But played. you didn't stay long. No, that's true. I was living with my, my dad, with my parents split up, and uh, he got upset, the thinking that I wasn't going to go to college, I needed to make some money. And so I kind of 
had regrets about that whole decision for years afterwards. But the reality is that I left the group and, and I did this thing, Yellow Balloon. See, that's what blew my mind. I know. Because, <laughs> I mean, you've been with so many great groups. And, uh, and that ain't one of them. <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad about the Yellow Balloon. I like all kinds of music, but that's very bubblegummy. Isn't that funny? About this time, as the Yellow Balloon kind of went through its thing and we were beginning to realize that this wasn't going to have much of a future, Randy and Cass come back and we connect with Randy at a gig in at UCLA or something, approach Randy. And he, he was very receptive to the idea of working with J&I, but he was very, very specific. He said, look, I'm doing this jazz gig. There was an upright bassist, John Locke and Ed Cassidy. And he says, I, will, I would like to work with you guys, but these two other guys have to come with. And that was spirit. And the fact that the cast wasn't a rock guy and I was, I was kind of going, oh, OK, uh, you know, it kind of changed what I had in mind about what I thought we were going to be doing with Randy into this very eclectic, basically a kind of a folk rock thing. But then the, the original tunes started to kick in and it was so much fun, man. 1966, 67 is when the first record came out. It was the kind of band that me and my friends used to listen to in a darkened room with uh, posters and black lights. And it was psychedelic, spacey kind of art rock stuff. Your first single uh, I read was Mechanical World. Yep. I didn't remember it. So I listened to it yesterday and I thought, wow, I like it, but I don't think it's a single. Yeah, exactly. That song, as crazy as it was, because you're totally correct. Death falls so heavy. <laughs> it was pretty heavy. It was just really crazy. But it, it broke out of uh, Florida. So we went to Florida, but there was no cohesive marketing or promotion. In other words, we didn't build on the success of that song into a national thing. We It was just sort of spotty. And I think that sort of set spirit up for underachieving. And I think the result is a band that really wound up being very well respected by musicians, uh, but underachieved uh, commercially. We influenced a lot of other musicians just by the crazy, wacky music that we played. And we played it well. I mean, Randy was just a monster, like I said, a prodigy. When we signed the recording contract with Ode Records, Jay, Randy, and I were underage. We had to have our parents oh, sign wow. the recording contract. Hey, at least you had some adult supervision, you know. Oh, no, no. Some of the artists I've talked to is like they signed these contracts and they really live to regret. Well, we, we were included in that. for that, And you would have thought that my parents, showbiz, not really. No. Okay. Well, you did have a hit record, though. I've got a line on you. I love that record. And that was Randy really, really trying to take spirit into a commercial vein and really use his bluesy, fun, energetic vibe to lead spirit onto commercial success. And it was it was a, a, a successful uh, single. But I think the, the spirit's masterwork, especially and it turned into Randy's, I think, masterwork was uh, 12 Dreams, really. But that's where Randy really came out as this very gifted guy. The first record, the only song that he wrote was Taurus. This, this song that was in the lawsuit with Led Zeppelin, that yeah. was the only thing that he wrote on that record. And on 
uh, 12 Dreams. By then, he was coming out, and his stuff really had layers, and it just sounded overproduced to me and initially. But, of course, I've learned to love it and recognize it as it really is, as Randy's and Spirit's master work. But Randy, he had a bad accident. He fell off a horse and fractured his skull and really didn't follow the doctor's orders when it was recovery. So he was doing a lot of the drugs of the era that we were all doing, but he had had a head injury. He started behaving in kind of an erratic way. I don't know how much of this you really want to get into, but that's the real truth of it. We had a tour of Japan lined up that we were so stoked about. It was a big opportunity. Randy just called everybody and said, hey, I don't want to go. The, the night before, I was packed. And something went off in my head, and I regret it to this day that I didn't have the communication skills to really reach out and really try to pull out from Randy what was really happening in, inside. Instead, I did kind of a, a, a typical thing for me at that time, which was, I'm out of here. See ya. I said, I, I'm not going to let this guy have control over my life and do these these very irresponsible kind of things. And and I told Jay, I said, I'm out of here. He said, well, please don't, just don't leave. He said, I want to work with you. And I said, okay, well, I'd like to work with you. So we started thinking of the concept. And then we brought my brother in, who is by this time a very, very masterful slide guitar player. It took us a while to find the drummer who wound up being Curly Smith. It took a, maybe a year or two to put that band together. We worked really hard on it. The first tour, they fired me. We're talking about Jojo Gunn here. Correct. Okay. My, brother, my best friend. Fired you. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I, they, <laughs> they didn't give you a reason? No. And, and, and never have. I mean, really, we did a reunion. We never talked about it. I said, well, that was fucked then. It's still fucked for me to know that you guys would do that. And they never talked about it. So I just said, okay, okay, okay. I played Jojo Gunn on the radio. <laughs> run, run, run. Great song. What's what's Jojo Gunn? Where did that name come from? It's a uh, Chuck Berry song. So they fired you. Wow. Before the tour was over. And I think that maybe the reason that those guys, they didn't like my girlfriend. Maybe. I don't know. And I do remember a little moment with Jay when I did a, a little improvisational vocal lick in a song that I didn't normally do it. And he got upset and took his microphone and slammed it in front of me. Said, "Oh well, you know." Oh my God! Maybe I was I was uh, taking up too much space or taking up too much oxygen or something. But uh, I said, "Okay, I'm done. I'm gone. This Hollywood culture stuff. I'm out of here." And of course, little did I know that everybody in Laurel Canyon, Benedict Canyon in Topanga was moving to Colorado at the same time. And you so you moved to Colorado. Moved to Colorado. But you know what? Before you go there, okay. just I'm fascinated by the scene in Los Angeles in the 60s. Tell me about what it was like being part of that whole scene. Well, I mean, there was the riot on Sunset Strip and there was the whole uh, anything was possible kind of culture. I mean, I mean, this had happened to us. They were going into Hollywood, probably looking for shows or something, looking for gigs. And um, there's a little market in Laurel Canyon as you wind through a little neighborhood market. It's quite nice, small, rustic. And we're in there, you know, getting some munchies or something. And probably the, the munchies had kicked in or something. And Frank Zappa's in there, and we strike up a conversation. And he's, he's, come on up, man. And we go to Frank's house, and we were going, oh, 
dude, we played with the mothers. I mean, I've been, you know, and he realized that we weren't just some hippies out there, but that, that I was in Can't Heat and that we were, you know, L.A. in the 60s was a volatile but magical place. And I think that that Quentin Tarantino movie, that, love it. that nailed it, man. Really, I love that movie. Me too. As a radio guy, I love the way he integrated the radio into that. It was it was a, a character. It was a it was. music was a character. The sixties, I think, all over the place was a magical time. I agree. You know, I agree. But uh, I I think to be out there during that time had to be like the ultimate. Yeah, or San yeah. Francisco, maybe. Exactly. And I was lucky that uh, Canty. The first places that we went played was up at the. Uh, it was the Avalon. It was uh, Chet Helms' place. And we went up there and it was awesome. We played uh, the human beings and those big love ends, they called them, right? Oh, amazing. Girls with their tops off and they're going, this is good. Life is good. But you escape to Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And uh, then I realized it took me a while to, to, to realize that everybody that basic, I mean, Hillman was, went there. Chris and I knew each other when he was in the birds came and then of course Neil and I bought a little place. Hillman lived up the road. Uh, he sold his house to Dan Vogelberg. So the whole magical LA experience kind of morphed into a Boulder, Colorado high thing. And and so the Firefall chapter be, began and, and it was game on. That first album hit gold faster than any other album in the history of Atlantic Records. I'll tell you, the, the uh, Firefall record went gold. And then five weeks after that went gold, I get a package in the mail and uh, the 12 dreams of Dr. Sardonicus had gone gold. And I think it was like five years later. Oh, wow. It took five years for Spirit to go gold. Spirit to go gold. And five weeks for Firefall, right? <laughs> so you got two gold records in the same space of time. One thing that interested me about Firefall, being from my background in Top 40, I knew the hits. And then I did a lot of listening before I talked to Jock of some of the other songs. And it, they really surprised me uh, because they seemed to be quite different, more sophisticated, uh, deeper. Um, it was really kind of a cool combination that you guys had. Yeah, I agree. So you had three very successful albums. Each one had a top 40 hit on it. One of the cool things is you had music that was different and diverse within each album. So you could appeal both to the top 40 audience with your hits and then also you were played on FM album rock radio at the same time. That's a good point. Yeah. You're, you're, and it's unusual. Yeah. But uh, so after the first three albums, though, then things start hitting the rocks a little bit. Well, you know, yeah, it was and it was just self-induced. I mean, kind of a it was a self-destructive kind of period of time. And by 1980, I realized that Firefall was going to probably not fare well. Uh, Rick would have a good night and, and, you know, be really, we'd be all stoked and all oh, right. And he would talk all night and then not have a voice the next day. And it was, it was not good. All due respect to Rick and who's recovered and Larry, who had a major heroin problem. By 1980, I thought, uh, you guys, I'm, I, I gotta, I gotta go. And uh, so I was the first original guy to bail. And I just took my family back to L.A., you know, kind of where I grew up and uh, started from scratch yet again, you know. So what would you do immediately after you got to L.A.? Well, I started making some phone calls and uh, I wound up getting in touch 
with my good friend Tim Goodman. And I was in Tim's band and we played some great shows. I think we were rehearsing in the valley and I saw this guy pushing a, a, a road case and it said, Howard Lee's heart, you know, and I, and I said, wow. So do you know Howard? Are you, do you work with Howard? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm this guy. You know, I said, oh man. And I wrote a little note. I said, Howard, I'm back in LA. Give me a call. Here's my number. I heard nothing <laughs> for like three months. You know, I thought, I thought, oh, I get a call. Because you knew Hart. Firefall played with Hart. Correct. We, we did some great shows here in, in, in the States. And uh, so I was friendly with all of those guys. So I felt comfortable reaching out to Howard, who was an L.A. guy. I didn't know him outside of Hart. But I, I, so the, the, the vibe between the two bands was su- such that when I saw his, his road case, I said, oh, well, hell, I, uh, I mean, so he calls in about three months. He says, hey, how would you like to be in Hart? And I said, yes, that, I, that would be good. I would like that. And I do recall getting asked to come up to uh, Seattle, like a, a, maybe a month afterwards. They kept in touch. And uh, so they said, well, come on, come on up. And at Nancy's house, we had a jam session. It was never said to me that this was an audition, but I have a feeling that that was it. Where Anne had the, you know, kind of the overview and, and they wanted to make sure that I was okay with, with them before they said, yeah, check out Mark. And so we played at Nancy's house and I, and I wound up, they asked me to join. And you had a hell of a run in that band, 10 years and lots of Big hits. Yep. Yep. These dreams. Number one, man. Yeah. These dreams and never and uh, all I want to do and uh, a lot of them. I remember playing Heart when they first came out back in the 70s. And, you know, I like those songs, you know, Barracuda and, and oh, me too. Uh, Magic Man. Oh, With- Crazy on You. I remember that, too. That yeah. Was, that was that- the first one I played. Crazy on You. Though you must have played in the concerts, right? Mm-hmm. The fans must have wanted those, too. This was more power pop kind of stuff that really were the big hits in the 90s. Correct. And, and I'm sorry, what, 80s. Yep. And, and, and uh, what was interesting and, and why I, I kind of am proud of the work that we did, we kind of were able to introduce Heart to a whole new generation of an audience because there was the people that really got the original group and the original hits. And then we come in with this sound that was just big and lush and uh, powerful. It gave me a sense of accomplishment because uh, I knew that we were really building the brand. That had to be in terms of rock stardom, the peak, right? To me, I have ne- never was a rock star, really, except for that time. I mean, that, that decade, you know, that's that 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 is I, I did that. You know, I, it was I was lucky enough to experience that. But previously and afterwards, I don't consider myself you know, when you're a rock star, there's a certain thing you're doing at that moment. And I wasn't there before. I did it then. And I kind of got into the singer songwriter accompanist mode and haven't looked back. But uh, yeah, I was a, I was a rock star, man. So how'd you like it? <laughs> how'd you like it? What was it like? Oh, it was great. <laughs> oh, it was great. I bet. Oh, we had so much fun. And, and what, what made it fun was that we were so good. I mean, Anne, every night, just killing it. And Nancy, I mean, they would be bone tired and we'd party like crazy and have fun. And 
get up and do it again. And, you know, we flew in our own jet. I mean, come on. Pretty amazing. I bet. So 10 years was enough for you? Well, yeah, I would have gladly stayed, but that that was the second time I was fired. <laughs> oh, you were fired? Oh, yeah. Do they tell you why at least this time? No. And I got this really kind of funky little note from Nancy. Oh, we're going to really kind of think about we're in a different direction. But I think they were upset with me because I was so vocal about the whole thing with Anne and her weight. And I don't know if I want to go into this because I don't want them to think that I'm attacking them. And I know they're doing this biopic thing. And Oh, they are. Oh. Yeah. But they didn't include Denny and me in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I know that there are some hard feelings, but I, I, I was pretty straightforward with them when Anne was not comfortable with her weight. And I think she's a beautiful person, no matter what weight she is. But her, I know that Lou, her mother, was concerned about her health, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was that going on. But there was me saying, be comfortable, just be your own hippie self. You know, it was what it was. So then what do you do after that? Oh, I, I started playing with uh, Dan Fogelberg. And I, I went with Dan for almost 10 years. Really? 10 years? Okay. But now you are back with Firefall. Correct. So how do you get back to Firefall? Call, you know, from Jock. His bass guy, Bill Hopkins, had retired from the band. So uh, Jock asked me if I would consider just doing some shows, you know, and see how I liked it. And I said, yeah, I'd, I, that would be good. I'd like to. And, and the funny thing about my relationship with Firefall is being an original guy. And uh, I, I, I wrote all my my parts. So I'm, I'm like, I, I was reconnecting with myself in a way, you know what I mean? And, uh, and then of course the vibe clicked and the band, I realized, wow, David is playing good and Jock is playing really well. And uh, Steve Weinmeister, lead vocalist at that time, was killing it. And so I was going, okay, I'm having fun. So when was that? Uh, maybe six years ago. And then you guys have been touring, and then now you have a new album. Correct. We, um, it occurred to me, the family tree aspect of Firefall is pretty legendary. So if we kind of infer our relationship to the birds and the burritos, and, and uh, it, it, it would kind of rub off on us. And so I, I, told, I said, Chuck, highlight that. And, and then that led to us doing... Uh, so you want to be a rock and roll star, you know, oh. uh, from the birds. And, and David Muse killed it vocally. He oh, sang I would love it. to hear that. Oh, it's, it was powerful. We wound up uh, starting to perform Nature's Way. And I got a line on you in, in the Firefall set. And that led to us realizing that, wow, we're doing these cool songs. So maybe we could record them. So we record a few tracks, Nature's Way being one of them. Which I heard, it was great. And you sing lead on that, don't you? Yeah, I sing the first verse, but I got Timothy to sing the second verse. <laughs> I wanted, I needed some backup there. And I, that was great. He helped out. And so we did like a two or three tracks in Colorado. And they said, well, God, this is, uh, we should hurry up and we'll maybe knock out a, knock out a record or, or something. So it, it took a while to get this version of, of the band sounding good, especially vocally uh, on the record. It took, it took four years, but Jock persisted and we, he wrote a lot of the songs and sang them. I like way back when, I think that's a really good song. I agree. 
and it's clever and it's a, a tribute to the birds and rightfully so i mean that's one of the tap roots you know of the, of the band so it, yeah it worked out well i'm ha- i'm happy with it you've been doing this for a long long time it's crazy. Many <laughs> notes, my brother. <laughs> Many notes. <laughs> yeah. So where are you going? Where are you going from here? You want to just do this forever? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. As long as I can do it at a high level, I'm fine with it. But once I start slipping and it's, you know, it's, it, it, if, if it's not quite up to a certain standard that I hold somewhere, then I'm done. But uh, Firefall, like I said, Firefall, the last time we played, we were rocking. So as long as we rock it, I'm I'm in there. But, you know, let's be honest, I'm, I'll be 73 in February. So it's like time's a ticking. The shelf life is uh, getting close to expiration. <laughs> doesn't seem that old to me. But like I said, I'm not that much younger than you. So there you go. <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you. I so appreciate you taking the time with me. Oh, dude, this is so much fun. If this virus settles down and you become getting close contact, I'd love to, you know, share a beer and peer over our masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, thanks so much. All right, Mark. Wow, that guy's done it all, hasn't he? Thanks to Mark Andes. And thank you for listening to RPM 45.